BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, welcome back to Hurt Tell. Okay, we're going to get him quick because he's one of the busiest people in Washington, D.C. right now because Congress is aflame. The president's on the move. The world's a turning. Things are happening. That's why we go to one of our good reporter friends, Eric Garcia. He's the senior scribe over at The Independent for all things Washington, D.C. How are you, my friend? Doing all right. Hanging in there. He also side hustles as an author and a musician, but we'll talk about that some other time because we've got ourselves a hot mess in Congress, my friend. Let's turn the noise down just procedurally. We all know about... GOP's a mess. We know the Democrats are going to hold together. We know the numbers. Just procedurally, what is going to happen over the next couple of days as Jim Jordan's threatening to go to a floor vote? What's that process? Do you think it's actually going to happen? Okay, so I've got to say that these first that that aside from the the whole ideology about Jim Jordan, I cannot think of somebody who has made more bad decisions if they want to be Speaker of the House than if they tried. So for those who don't know, on Friday, they huddled, uh, the, the, the House Republican Conference huddled in Longworth. Um, let me turn that off. <clears throat> they huddled over, the House Republican Conference huddled over in Longworth, uh, the Longworth House office building. And they basically did what they tried to do with Steve Scalise, which is have like a full conference vote to, to, to get behind Jordan. The first one, he got something like 81 no votes. Then the second one, he got like 55 no votes and one present vote. But the thing of it is that baffles me, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around it, is he didn't call for a roll call. It was a, it was a, it was a secret ballot. So he didn't know who to call over the weekend. And then now he's talking about trying to put this to a floor vote on Tuesday. I cannot think of it. It almost makes me think that he doesn't want the thing because he's not doing the active whipping operations. I mean, the, the things that you would want to do if you wanted to have a smooth whipping operation. Yeah, and this is funny because just on last Wednesday, 
I was giving him some credit because he was the one saying we can't go to the floor until we got 217 or 218 or whatever the number's going to be because yeah. they got they got a couple people that may or may not be there. He's the one that came up with that, at least publicly, and said we can't go to the floor without it. And then he turned right around over the weekend, and now that his name's on the top, he's saying the exact opposite. He was for it before he was against it. He ain't getting the votes. They're just no. not there. He's going to get 10 to 20 hard no's. He can only afford to lose four. This makes no sense to me. When things don't make sense to me, I back up and go, okay, wait a minute. What do I know about Jim Jordan? He's been in Congress 16 years. He's had no sponsored legislation actually become legislation. He's a demagogue. He wants to sit on the dais and pontificate and be on the news programs. That's his thing. He likes to fight. Good, bad, or indifferent. That's who Jim Jordan is. He's a pugilist. He didn't want to be speaker last time. I don't think he wants to be speaker this time. That makes me wonder what's really going on here. Are we going to see the specter of Kev Kev Roz back up at the end of this week to try to patch this whole thing up, or are we just going to try to push McMaster's through for 45 days? None of this makes sense, which means what's really going on we don't know about. That's my yeah. take. Yeah, I mean, I mean, he he does. You know, Jordan is important to recognize. Jordan got Jordan uh, was elected in 2006. Uh, and on top of that, of course, he did a lot of battles with John Boehner uh, back in the day. Is partially responsible for John Boehner calling it quits. Um, but the, 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 as you said, not only is he never sponsored legislation, he's passed up opportunities to do it. So in 2010, he had the opportunity to join the Appropriations Committee. He passed on that to become chairman of the RSC. Uh, and, and for those who don't know, the Freedom Caucus is to um, Hezbollah what the RSC is to the Muslim Brotherhood, to use a, a crude analogy. Uh, and on top, and on top of that, the other thing is, is that, as you said, he's a pugilist. He likes being on television. He's doing this for fundraising. He's doing this. He's always put himself up. Even back in 2018, he put himself up against McCarthy to be to be uh, to be speaker, even though uh, even to be leader of the GOP, even though he knew it was never going to happen. He's doing this to get himself more attention, which is all that Jim Jordan ever wants. Um, but as you said, I don't know if McCarthy could come back because it feels like the eight Republicans who voted to boot him have a chance. You know, they they have arguably a lesser opinion now than they did in the beginning. And on top of that, but at the same time, you know, it looks like, I mean, you know, there's talk, you know, if McHenry wants it, if they put him forward as like a consensus guy because he doesn't quote unquote want it, it could be very similar to the Paul Ryan situation back in 2015, where Paul Ryan said, I don't want this. I want to be ways and means chairman. Uh, I, I want to, I want to pass my tax cuts. That to me is the likely thing. It, it, it doesn't look like, you know, I don't know if it's going to be McCarthy. It's not going to be Jordan. I don't know who it is, who's going to be at this point. Um, the difference there is, of course, they went to Paul and gave him anything he wanted to come in and rescue them. They're not going to yes. give McMaster's that kind of a deal. That does seem to be the backup plan is let's just get McMaster's a 60-day window, a 45-day window, something. But is that going to fly? Yeah. First off, it's McHenry. Just, just McHenry, sorry. What well, else? Well, well, but yeah, but yeah. So, you know, that could be a thing. I think that McHenry, you know, everybody talks about Tom Cole, but Tom, but Cole never wants it. You know, I passed by, I passed by the rules office the other day where he's chairman of the rules committee and he could smell the cigar smoke. He likes being able to do that. You know, it could be, it could very easily be someone like him. They give him, they give him as much authority, breathing room and authority as he wants. He has, he has enough ties to the financial industry and enough ties to uh, and is conservative enough uh, that that I think some people might like him. But at this point, yeah, they're, they're probably just going to, you know, it's going to be the equivalent of passing a CR. It's just going to be, they're going to be cycling through this and, you know, maybe, you know, at this point, they I don't think they have any choice but to give McHenry, McHenry more power. 
uh, to just, just to pass stuff on Israel and pass stuff on and and don't forget they still had to fund the government at the end of the month. So uh, so they so it's it's very easy. So at this point they they might have no choice but to give Speaker Pro Tem more power. And they're getting ready to get a whole bunch more pressure because the Senate's back in session today. Schumer and Romney and a couple others were in Israel over the weekend. They're going to start passing stuff today. Yes. So, and that's in, that's intentional. They want to pile pressure onto the House to get their crap together because there's stuff that needs to get done. Uh, there's going to be a fight over the ambassadorship to Israel, among other things. What do we look for over the next day besides just the machinations of the vote? Because we're pretty sure that how that's going to go. We don't know what's going to come after that, but we know the rest of government is grinding forward. And this is kind of just the, you know, this is the lug nut that won't screw tight, right? Essentially, at this point, you know, like as you said, Romney, uh, Romney, Schumer, Mark Kelly, and a few others were in Israel over the weekend. Jackie Rosen, who's actually head, who was one of the heads of the largest synagogues in Nevada at the time uh, before she ran for Congress. Um, yeah, there, there is almost this feeling of, at least in the Senate side, and at least in the, certainly by the White House, of come on, let's get going. You know, the president, of course, canceled. He was going to go to Lauren Boebert's district of all places to promote the the, the Inflation Reduction Act, but he's saying, no, I'm staying here. You know, I'm, I'm focusing on I'm focusing on the Middle East. So at this point, they, they, there really is this feeling of. Uh, <clears throat> We need to focus on providing aid to Israel. We need to focus on passing a government spending bill. Uh, and, and there's almost this kind of um, pushing the House. But I don't know how effective that's going to be. I don't think it's going to be effective. I think that, if anything, it's going to make them say they can't move without us. You know, I, I was talking with a lot of Republicans last week, and I said, like, are you guys going to do anything? You know, does this make it harder for you guys to respond to Israel? They're like, we passed aid to Israel in the defense bill, even though the defense, defense bill was never going to pass the Senate. Uh, so so they, they're trying to convert it, but it's not, it's not, cra- it's not, it's, it's not acting. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. 
but nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Well, let's go to something that I'm pretty sure is acting because you were there for. We have George Santos with extra indictments, and now he's yelling about babies. I kind of blame you for tweeting about his Taylor Swift music selection for this whole situation, but maybe I'm wrong here. But that is one of the most bizarre things I've seen in the halls of Congress in quite a long time. And there's plenty of bizarre things that happened in the halls of Congress. What was that? Okay. Okay. So this is, I'm only going to say what I saw. So I saw the video of the baby where he was, uh, but I was only there. So what happened is, so this is, this is I'm only going to tell is you. Is the baby okay? Let's start with some basics because you never know. <laughs> Santa, whose baby was it? And is the baby okay? I th- From what I hear, the, the, it was, I think it was like a baby of a staffer or something like that. So anyway, so Santos walks out of this. So, so for those who don't know, it's they're, they're meeting in the Longworth House office building, which is just right out, right, right next to the Capitol, and they're, they're having their little GOP conclave. Um, and so, what happens is Santos walks out, and I decided to catch him, not because I wanted to, you know, I knew he was going to talk to me about the indictments, but I figured, look, you're a member of Congress, buddy, you got to, you got to talk about what's going on in the in the House. And I knew that he didn't like Scalise, and I knew that he had been an, an OG Jordan supporter even though he hails from a Biden district. So I made the mistake of trying to take him seriously. Uh, I'm never going to do that again. So I, I asked him some questions about the speaker's race, why Jordan is the most qualified. Then what happens is he comes across this guy uh, who apparently was the guy who was asking him questions about Israel, Palestine um, earlier in the day when he was holding the baby. And for better or worse, he just starts yelling at this guy. And mind you, Capitol Police were already in the process of arresting this guy. So, like, this was already resolved. Like, they were already in the process of of, 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 of apprehending this dude. But he just wanted to make a scene. And he just started shouting at this guy, yelling at this guy. <laughs> and then what happens is all the other reporters... Move from move from covering, you know, waiting outside the hall, you know, for the for the GOP conclave to immediately bomb rushing Santos, and it's it's this it's this pandemonium. <laughs> I, I, I I I kind of I'm kind of to blame because I was the only person who was gonna talk to Santos. I think everybody else was talking to like Kevin Hearn or Tom Cole or Byron Donalds or, or, or somebody else. I was the only I was the only chucklehead who decided to catch George Santos. So so yes, I'm to blame for this. One of our reporter friends had an all-timer of a tweet. He said it was like watching the gazelle rushing across the Serengeti towards George Santos. And yes. I'm embarrassed for my profession. <laughs> yeah, my friend John Nicholson. Uh, it, it was yeah it was very much like that. It was like as soon as he did that, and like, look, I'm, I'm to put my tinfoil hat on. I, I actually think that that was like a way for him to create a distraction from the absolute clown car that is this speaker's race. Um, and, and it worked. It worked. You know, and it was a way for him to, def- to deflect attention from the fact he's got the superseding indictment and the fact that his treasurer just pled guilty. So it kind of benefited him to do that. And we're all the, and we 
he suckered us into that. And he has a first for something I haven't seen in the five or six years I've been doing it, reading through FEC reports. He had a negative FEC fundraising report. I don't know that I've ever seen that for, I've seen it for post candidates after their things where they clean their books out and stuff. I don't know that I've ever seen that for a sitting office holder. I've never seen that in my life. Yeah, because it's mostly refunds for donations. Uh, yeah, at this point, like this dude, like like this dude is done. This dude is done. Um, and what was funny is I'm not gonna say who, but one member asked me about that whole like DM me and asked me about that whole ordeal. Some Republican member of Congress DM me and asked me about that whole ordeal, and I was just like, I'm not talking about this anymore. It's the weekend. Uh, the troublemaker, Eric Garcia in the hall. Look, when we say he's in the hall of Congress, stirring up the news, we mean it. Uh, let's zoom back out from the nuttiness for a second. We know we got Congress is a mess. We know that is how much has the Israel stuff changed the focus in DC? We still have the looming, um, debt crisis, the funding bills, the CR, whatever they're going to do with the funding stuff that's out there for about four weeks from now. We know that's coming, but Usually something like a terrorist attack to an ally is a unifying thing, even in D.C., at least temporarily. We saw a little bit of that, but this feels different on a couple levels. Does it feel different in Congress? I know some of it's the dysfunction, but with Congress and the White House and everything, this feels a little weird right now, doesn't it? It is definitely weird. So, I mean, I think I think one of the things that, uh, you know, talk, to, talk about our old friend Kevin McCarthy, I, I caught him when he was talking, when he took himself out of the running back in, uh, uh, was it Tuesday? Uh, when he said, don't nominate me, <laughs> which was so sanctimonious. It was so, <clears throat> I did it for the good of the conference. Um, but oh, he got a whip count and then came out and told you all he wasn't running. That's how. Yeah. That yeah, yeah. Basically. Um, uh, so, but like, I, I asked him point blank. I was like, look, what does it say to the world that we can't get, uh, that we can't get our act together when the Middle East is on fire. And he says in his very, uh, you know, whiny voices, I think it says more that the president can't, took so long to get back and respond. And I was just like, and then like, and I think that a lot of the, I guess you could say the, 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 I don't want to call them the the moderates, or the, but like the ones who are just the goal on to get along Republicans are like, look, we need to do this because of Israel. Like it, because like, because, you know, Supporting Israel is a core tenet of Republican politics. But on top of that, you, you, you know, as I said before, a lot of conservatives, you know, you got now some MAGA conservatives who are like, Israel doesn't need us to get in the way. They need to just defeat Hamas. Then you have, you know, someone like Chip Roy saying, you know, we got they got 30 days. To, they got 30 days to handle themselves before, you know, the War Powers Act kicks in. Uh, and you got, you got people like Troy Nell saying we already passed something through the Senate. So there, so even though I would say a majority uh, a major- not just a, not a majority of the House Republican Conference, but a majority of the House says, "Look, we need to do something on Israel, <clears throat> and we need to provide aid." And, and, and you, you know, you're you're seeing the 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 morass on the um, on the right is preventing it. And, and look, you know, like you, you could say, "Well, what about uh, you know, you've only got you know, well, what about Rashida Tlaib and Cory Bush and you know some of those? That's only three or four members tops." You know, that's not enough to stop uh, on the Democratic side. That's not enough to stop an aid bill. Like, if the, you know, it was only the Democrats objecting uh, and, and the majority, even even someone like AOC called, you, you know, condemned the attacks on Hamas, the attacks from Hamas, I should say. So it's not so the the real 
sign of the, the the real cause of the morass and the reason why they're stuck like molasses is uh is is, is these 10 to 20 hell no republicans Garcia joining us. I think that's going to fix itself. Schumer's already been to Israel, obviously. He's very tied into the Jewish community in New York. Cory Booker was there when it happened. Yeah, Dan um, Goldman was there when it happened. Dan Goldman was there when it happened. I think some of that's going to shake itself out. However, the aid thing, is it really going to be an issue? Because we have this caucus now on the far right yeah. that the MAGA people really exposed themselves over the last week or so, especially the influence class and the, you know, the pack class i don't want to paint all packs but you know what i'm saying i know you're talking people about. that do this for a living online they really expose themselves on some of this i wonder how much blowback there's going to be politically on some of this because i'm not sure all those folks that like that MAGA attention and like that hard right online presence i'm not sure they can politically viably be attached with some of that stuff some of the stuff that's coming out of the libertarian wing and the tp usas of the world and some of yeah. these online influence they're going to have to separate from some of this or they're going to have a really, really hard time in Washington, D.C., not to mention the general public. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the majority polling shows that the majority of Americans overwhelmingly support Israel uh, and, and support its efforts to wipe out Hamas. <clears throat> and I think that you're, you're, you're right. The, the, the terminally online Republicans are the ones who appeal to Charlie Kirk or appeal to what, what have you. They're, uh, they're going to be in some trouble. I think that for now, they are you, you know there's this there's this distraction to the speaker's race, but eventually there's good, but eventually there's there's going to have to be some there is going to be a reckoning, and I, I think that whoever the speaker's going to be, they're they're, they're going to remember that they tied up this entire uh, this entire fight about Israel, and they they tied up the the ability of Congress to respond. I think it's I think it I think it will have some some ramifications for some folks. Let's talk about those some folks real quick before we got to let him get back to his day job. Eric Garcia, reporter for The Independent. What are they going to do with Matt Gates? And then you have the other one. So look, some of those people that voted no, they're they're pretty entrenched. You know, the bigs of the world, whatever. Yeah, I think correct. the two people you pay attention to is Matt Gates because this was his baby. This was his moment in the sun. He got it. He yeah. got to be Brutus in the form and stab, you know, Caesar. Of course, yeah. Philippi will come. Tell me when his Philippi is coming so I can make sure I have the popcorn and enjoy it. But then the other one I think is interesting is somebody like a Nancy Mace who seemed completely discombobulated, not knowing who to suck up to in the current environment. What do we do with those two? Because I think those are the two on the Republican side to watch, whether they're actually going to get their stuff together. Or they're still going to let these people just go rampaging through. Yeah. So that's surprise. Nancy Mace doing that, you know, you know, vacating Kevin surprised me because like I remember during the, the speaker fight, she blasted the Lauren Boberts and the Matt Gates of the world for, for, for delaying this, the, the speaker's race. But then what was interesting was uh, I think it was during the CR with the vote into the CR, she and Matt Gates walked in together and I was like, Oh, Oh, huh, that's interesting. And then uh, when I, called her afterwards she was on the phone i think she was talking to somebody but then i called her she and i have enough of a rapport where i was just like what do you make of this i know you voted no and then she said you know crs are what we do to 
BS the American public, though she didn't say BS. Uh, you, you know, and, and I was just like, oh man, she's hopping mad. And then, uh, and then, I, and then, you know, she went on the View and said, "I'm really torn. I don't know if I should vote against McCarthy or not." You know, and I thought she always does this. She did this with the Ilhan Omar vote. She did this with a few other things. And I was just like, forget it. And then, and then on the floor, she delivers the killing blow to McCarthy before before Rosendale and before Biggs and all them did that. But, uh, but, but, but yeah, I mean, and now she's a wild card. Now she's she got behind Jordan, which really delivered. In a lot of ways, the killing blow to Scalise. The question is now, uh, you, you know, what does she do if Jordan can't get the votes, and what and and what's her role now? The other person who's been it's been fascinating to watch this whole thing is, and it's almost hard to believe, is it feels like Marjorie Taylor Greene's influence has diminished a lot because she hitched her wagon to the Kevin train. So you you know, but uh, you know, she tried to insert herself back in this week, last week, I should say, when she said that, well, I don't want Scalise to be speaker when he has to deal with cancer. But like, it was almost kind of like she did it just to try to get some attention. But she, you know, nowadays, people don't pay attention to her as much as they pay attention to your Chip Roy's or your Nancy Mace's or your, uh, or, or any of those other folks. The letter A shirt thing going in the conference. Oh How God. did that play with the conference? Because everybody online, number one is not enough people have read the book, so they probably had to Google what in the world she was doing in the first. They probably thought it was an Emma Stone movie. But what was the play in the conference? Because if they're hopping mad at Matt Gates's theatrics, I can't imagine that played real well. There, there, there's some groans. There's some feeling of, um, you know, <laughs> there's this feeling of like, what's her deal? I, I mean, I think a lot of people in the House GOP conference are tired of the are, are tired of the theatrics, um, but uh, you know, particularly particularly from Mace and particularly from some from some other folks. But but but, but at this point, yeah, they're, they're you know, I don't see the difference between that's that that A on the shirt and George Santos's little temper tantrum. Yeah. Well, God, there's your visual putting them two together. All right, Eric Garcia, we got to let you go. One quick question, though. Once we get past this speaker fight, yeah, we got kind of the lame duck going in the election. Congress probably is not a lot going to do. We know we got split. Look, stuff like Ukraine funding, Israel funding, that's going to get through one way or the other. Yeah. What should we pay attention to in the lame duck part of this Congress going into the next election cycle as everybody starts scrambling? Is the chaos going to overlinger the GOP? How is the Democrats feeling about maybe getting the House back? Just give us the lay of the land for a couple headlines. Yeah, the, the, the lay of the land at this is that I think that the House, I think that the House Democrats are licking their chops at this. They, uh, you, you know, for a while. I posted over the weekend. I said, you know, if Hakeem Jeffries were smart, he would call. He'd be calling a handful of Biden district Republicans and say, "If you vote for me for speaker, I won't. Uh, we won't run ads against you." But then uh, Robert Garcia responded to me. He says, "No, we just want to beat them." <laughs> um, but uh, which, you know, I respect that. Uh, but, but 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 you know, like you said, the funding's going to get there. The uh, the you, you know the uh, the Israel and the Ukraine stuff is going to get there. I think the main thing that that everybody's going to be seeing is like up until now, a motion to vacate was always a hypothetical. Now, if you take up the speaker's job, at least in this Congress, you know you do have to deal with the likelihood. That if you anger Matt Gates, or you anger Nancy Mace, or you anger Matt Rosendale, or you anger anger Andy Biggs, or even some of the, the the swing district R's, they can file a motion to vacate, and they can you know cut your head off. 
I think the, I think that plays a role. I think the fact I think you're going to see Democrats run on the chaos within the House Republican the House GOP caucus. You saw uh, conference. Uh, you saw that kind of preview with Hakeem Jeffries and Catherine Clark giving their speeches uh, after uh, after the fallout. Uh, and I think that you're going to see on the campaign trail. I think you're going to see President Biden start to focus focus on this a lot. Uh, the, the the important thing, uh, what's interesting about this, and some people have noticed this, is that Trump hasn't play hasn't been really in the media because of that. Like he had that whole little thing with praising Hezbollah. But but he hasn't really been a factor. He's going to be in court later today. But you know he hasn't. But he he's kind of been a non-factor. I think that I think that and the fact that he backed Jordan over Scalise and then Scalise still got it. I think is is, is another is another sign that Trump's uh, influence it's still big over the voting base, but it doesn't have a lot of influence over GOP leadership. Yeah, interesting time, Eric Garcia. Let folks know how they can keep up with you this week because you're going to have some juicy tidbits over the next couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, Hopefully, not involving George Santos. Oh Jesus! Um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Eric Gar- Eric M Garcia. You can follow me on Threads at Eric M Garcia fourteen. So yeah, see you there. You're one of our best guys. We love having you on, my friend. Go get on the hill. We'll talk soon. See you soon, buddy. Thank you, sir. Ah, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, you may have heard the terminology, the new right. The thing is, it's just the same old problems with the new nomenclature. What does that mean? I'll be honest, I don't know either because it keeps changing all the time. Let's go down to Pikeville, Kentucky. Good friend of ours. Excited to get him on the show, though. Been reading his stuff and talking to him. Glad to have you on. Jeffrey Tyler Sick. He's a professor of politics and such things down there in Kentucky. How are you, sir? Great to have you on the program. I'm doing very good. It's great to be here with you. Good to see you. Congratulations on the new gig, by the way. Got you back in the halls and groves of academe. Well done, sir. Um, Let's start here, though, because I think the terminology is important here. The nomenclature of it, the new right. You see that on social media. There's a certain strand of people on the right that really, really like that terminology. They, They use it as kind of nomenclature and banner for themselves. How are you using it, though? And we're going to link to his piece in, in Law and Liberty that's pretty in-depth on this. Read it in the show notes on the Substack. Give me some nomenclature on what the new right and just a little brief history on why they're a little different than maybe, you know, re- we know everything changed after Trump. But these are ideas that predated Trump, but these are not Bush conservatives. These are not Reagan conservatives. These are not conservatives, as most people have used the term for the last 30, 40 years. Well, and that's exactly the distinction they're they're trying to make. They want to say they're different from Ronald Reagan, they're different from George Bush. Um, they want to emphasize that they are tend to be very culturally conservative, very socially conservative. But when it comes to economics, um, they tend to be um, a little more on the left. They like welfare. They like state intervention in the economy. And, but the general sentiment is they're not just socially conservative. They think the state has a role to play in social issues as well. And that's where they think people like Bush and Reagan went wrong. They kind of agree with Bush and Reagan on social issues, but they think Bush and Reagan were all about small government. The new right is all about big government, just conservative big government. 
Yeah. Here's something I want to delve into right off the top of this, because I think it's really important to get our hands on. You wrote this piece as a bit of a rebuttal, but the rebuttal wasn't really against the person. It's the idea of what they were trying to do. I'm quoting yeah. here you a little bit. You're saying you were, they're trying to lay an ideological foundation or some kind of a logical thing. I know friends like my buddy Jay Caruso has written extensively about the populism of the new right. He's got a great piece. I'll link to that one too. You need to read it. Thing is, they're not really pure populists either, although they have a lot of those tendencies. Like if you just look at the jersey they're wearing for the team, that looks like a populist. They don't really fit that. They don't really fit conservative. They're not super, you know, there's some horseshoe theory where they start getting into some leftist stuff, but they don't really fit that either. Part of the thing here is that they're trying to, claim that there's some kind of a logical thread and you just kind of lay it out you just lay it out it's like look these are just people that want power to change what they cannot change otherwise that's the common thread but you can't say that yeah i, I think that's right these are people who i mean to be fair they're not wrong um have lost on most major policy debates in the last 30 40 years and they've decided that since they keep losing it's time to seize the hands of government by what other means necessary. And they're often pretty open about this. The piece I was refuting um, has a whole section about how we need a much more powerful state, we need much more bureaucrats who can do conservative things. And then at the, the next section, it's called Holding Out for a Hero, where it talks about how you need one strong individual to make it all happen. And so they're laying out, at the heart of it is not that their ideas are new, what's moreover is kind of a desire to, to use um, the full force of the government to make their plans happen because they don't think they're going to get it otherwise. And they haven't been, but that doesn't necessarily make it okay for them to do that. Yeah. Jeffrey Tyler Sick joining us. I'm, I'm going to throw one more term at you and then we'll delve into this a little bit because this term's really important to me. I've used it on this program. I use it in my writing all the time. I talk about extensively America is a big, pluralistic, diverse country. That's not throwaway nomenclature. That's something I've thought about a lot. That's something that I've learned both through life experience and academic experience and now being a commentator and a writer for a number of years. I use that very, very deliberate. It's a pluralistic, diverse society. It's what makes America so different than every other country on a base level when you're talking, especially on social type of issues. Lay that terminology out for somebody, though, because you touched on it. If you start getting into the cultural aspects, that pluralism is the part that really starts to bug these folks. They yeah. use that as a pejorative when they talk about pluralism. I think it's a positive, though, as long as it's you know used properly. All right, Professor, yeah. we're going to sit and learn. Give us a quick little lesson on pluralism and give two examples. Right. I mean, that's, <laughs> I would say pluralism is a society... A a pluralistic society. I think it's best demonstrated by example, not in theory. Um, pluralism is the idea that people who, who have distinct differences should be allowed to live according to those differences. Um, so in a diverse society like the United States, um, where you have lots of different religions and lots of different ethnicities and it's a big country, there's geographic differences. People in West Virginia are different than people in California, set aside religion and all those other concerns. And and a pluralist society is the idea that these people should be allowed to live together. They should be allowed to exist harmoniously because they're allowed to live in accord with the dictates of their own wishes. Um, and that's, I, I think it's really what the founding fathers, as much as they could, envisioned for America. Obviously, there are ways in which they, they didn't, uh, weren't particularly pluralist in regards to slavery and things like that. But 
that that was the general vision. It's always, I think, been kind of the American vision. Yeah, and here's where this gets into it. Their argument, the folks on the new right, the pluralists, the MAGA folks, the Trump real hardcore supporters, these folks, um, there's others, there's some organizations that, look, a lot of this stuff comes from the same two or three sources over and over again. I don't want to get into it. I want to keep a big picture. But the reason that matters so much is because they'll take a grain of truth. Well, the administrative state is not letting us live side by side in peace or X, Y, and Z crimes not allowing us to live side by side in peace or overburdensome bureaucratic regulation is not letting us live in peace or them over there, whoever they are, because that always changes, is trying to take away X, Y, and Z right from us. So we're not allowed to let, they're always going to find some reason why they don't live in peace. The problem is their answer is always to attack the other people so that they can't live in peace yeah. anyway. And you have this perpetual nonstop war thing. How do we talk about that in a productive way of taking the, you know, 20, 30% of truth, but not sacrificing the 70% of prosperity to get that fixed? Yeah. So, I mean, in a weird sort of way, as you point out, they're saying, well, we're not a pluralist society, so let's shove it, to stick it to the other guy. And that's that's not quite right. I think um, the better response is, are we failing to live up in all respects to being a pluralist society? Yeah. Are some people treated differently because of who they are and the things they believe? Yeah, of course. The response is to try and create a world where that isn't true, not to then um, instead just fight with the other people, the people who disagree with you, which is what they're doing. Um, so it's to double down on the principles we're failing to achieve to try and make them a reality, I think, that ought to be our goal instead of abandoning the principles of pluralism and rights and all these sorts of things to aggressively pursue total war victory. Because for these people, what it has become, the kind of war, the cultural war, and then they even call it that, the culture wars. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Religion is at the intersection of our 21st century life, even if we don't express a faith. At a time when it seems that religion isn't as prevalent as it once was, it still leaves its mark everywhere. As a pastor, I know that religion isn't something I just do on a Sunday, but it's found in every nook and cranny of my life. Sexuality, politics, social media, the economy, war, nationalism, all have some kind of religious angle to them. And as a communicator, I want to find the stories that can help people understand this part of our society that is so important to so many. Hi, I'm Dennis Sanders, and I'm the host of Church and Maine. Church and Maine is a podcast about the journey of faith and where it intersects with modern life. I look at faith with a journalist's eye, asking the who, where, what, why, and how religion affects some of the major issues of the day. Join me as we journey together. You can listen to Church in Maine podcasts at the website churchinmaine.org or on your favorite podcast app. I look forward 
to seeing you. Let's talk about it this way, because you laid it out as you went through your piece at Law and Liberty. Again, we're going to link to the whole piece. It's a long piece. It's in-depth. It's excellent. We're going to link to it, herdtel.substack.com. Read the entire thing. When you're talking about the perpetual, you know, doomed to perpetual content conflict is how you lay it out. You also lay out some stuff from history. I'm a history guy. I like it. You talk about there's no road down that path that doesn't wind up in tyranny and despotism. Yeah whether it's for the religious reasons or the, we need to run a better government, you know, every, every tyrant yeah. ever started out with, I'm going to run everything better. You know, Mussolini got the trains running all the time for the first time, right? All that, you know, this sort of thing, it's always an excuse for the power, but it always ends up in the same place. And that's why pluralism is so important is if it's big, diverse and plural, it's really hard for one person to get control of yeah. all of it. So therefore, that is the eternal conflict, but it's also the red flag for people like us who have a society that's hashing this out in a very messy way of, oh, this is why you do this, because this is actually more than just being diverse to be diverse. This is a safeguard against those folks. And then when they openly are telling you that, there's your red flag. Yeah. Well, I mean, you say there's only one way to live and everybody has to live that way. And somebody else is going to disagree with you. It's just going to happen. People will never agree entirely. And once you have that disagreement, there's going to be a fight about it. And if the only solution is total victory for one side over the other, then it has to be despotism because you're forcing somebody else to live a particular way. And so the alternative to pluralism has, history has shown us time and time again, always been tyranny. Um, and I, one wonders sometimes if the new right really minds that or if they're perfectly aware of the problem? The answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I think they know what they're doing. Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I know that's, I know academics hate when you do that. They say, well, it's either this or this. No, that one, it's a yes. There, there are some people that are just, you know, ignorant to what it really means because they're going along with the buzzwords, but the people yeah. pushing it, they know well and good. Uh, Jeffrey Tyler sick. When you laid out a couple of your, your points here, what, did you try to do it in an order or what struck you again, you're replying from another piece here, but what's kind of the high spots on this for the, you know, the new, right, the nationalism, the populism, the, the NatCon, some of them are calling themselves, whatever nomenclature you want. What's a couple of the things that popped out to you of like, okay, if you're going to talk about this, you need to address, you know, one, two, and three. Give us a couple of the highlights of what people need to know about this movement. Right. So, I mean, I think one of the big ones is that they want to use the administrative state, which is a kind of fancy way of saying the bureaucracies, all the agencies in Washington, D.C. that regulate things. And they want to use them um, for their own purposes. And you could think that's kind of wholesome because the bureau and they're not wrong. Bureaucracies do lots of important things, but presumably they're not talking about regulation of milk pasteurization or um, nuclear energy or anything like this. They're they're mostly talking about social issues. They want people to live a certain way. And the piece I was responding to made this pretty evident. There was a whole long section about how women need to live in traditional gender roles, which may sound nice to anybody of a slightly conservative disposition, but what's pretty clear in the piece actually was the guy meant stay-at-home moms, which is fine if you want to do it. But so there's this, 
And they're kind of cagey about it. So you have this long section about how we need a more robust administrative state. And I don't really say what it's for exactly, but they follow it up. They always follow it up by a list of things they do care about. And it's things like gay marriage. It's things like women in the home, things like this. And it's sort of evident that that's what they think these things should be for. They should be for forcing people to live what they think is the right way. Yeah, and I, I think that, to... that's the obvious. But the thing that struck at me and always struck me in a new right article is the complete intolerance to other ways of life that just permeates the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey Tyler Sick joining us. One of the things you pointed out, and I think it's important because the 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 new right folks or how you know the populists, the nationalists, whatever you want to call them. Because they're all they're all saying roughly the same thing. They love to hijack, you know, the founding and our founding documents and the founding fathers for their own purposes. Right. Now, the founding fathers, we do overly deify them. You know, they they were men of their day. They had limited knowledge to what they knew of the world. They were using the knowledge they had on hand. We can hash that. You know, they they didn't take care of things that they themselves in their own writing knew they should have, like slavery. We can hash that all out some right. other time. But what they did, and you pointed out in their piece, because what they did, if you take it in the big picture, actually answers a lot of what these folks are claiming on the new right. They didn't set out an ordered society. They set out a societal framework. That's your word from the piece. Walk us through that, because I think that's a huge and very important difference in viewing how the Constitution works, how our checks and balance system of government that is so unique works. I think that's a real key to understanding the difference between our system of government and pretty much any other system of government before or frankly since is that it was a societal framework that could fit almost anybody within it with recourses, redresses of grievances. All that's from a framework, not an ordered society. That's a big difference that I don't think we've educated ourselves very well on. Right. I mean, they wanted to create a structure in which people could be protected from tyranny, from private tyranny, from public tyranny, from tyranny, um, but would otherwise be able to live their own. And in fact, you need that kind of protection to live your life as you want. And that's the kind of structure they wanted to provide. And Mad- James Madison, usually called the father of the Constitution, says it pretty directly in an essay he wrote in the Federalist Papers. He says, there's always gonna be factions, people who disagree with one another about things. He says, and the solution is not to get rid of factions, he said, and it's not to have one faction win over the other, because that's the end of democracy. The solution has to be creating a country in which the factions exist. And if they do compete, they compete in a healthy way. But really trying to lower the temperature of competition as much as humanly possible. And that was the goal of the founding, have these people who disagree live together and be protected from one another so they're not all killing each other. And so you can actually have a pluralist society, a free society. You point out in the piece, I think this would be good advice for people on their social media and in their own conversations when they run into folks that believe this stuff. You talk about how their political positions are coherent as long as you don't actually push them to actually talk about real life people. Um, Because they're like, well, this will make our communities better and our community should be the foundation of the country. Well, that's fine, but your community cannot do geopolitics either. So there's got to be some, you know, between the communities. Give folks that piece, because really what they need when we're discussing this, you don't have to holler. You don't have to yell. You don't have to debate me, bro, and do all that nonsense. Give them the one or two questions to really drill past the buzzword of what they're really after on this, because you laid it out in your pieces like what makes it coherent? 
well, are you willing to consider, you know, without affirming four or five things that you believe in only, and if you don't believe these things and you're not real American or whatever else, give folks one or two of those questions that aren't really, you know, confrontational, but it'll get you to the truth really quickly in a conversation. Right. Yeah, I mean, so if you, if you really want to decide if somebody's okay living with people different than them, I mean, ask them, how would you feel um, having a neighbor of a different religious belief? Um, ask them how they would feel if their daughter married somebody of a different religious belief. That's when it gets trickier. Um, religion, though, sometimes can be easy, depending on the starkness of the disagreement. So you can ask, how, how would you feel about having somebody live next to you who, who does something you really find deplorable. And I don't know what that would be, but it would vary for the person. If you think um, divorce is deplorable, how would you feel being friends with the divorced person or at least being friendly with the divorced person? And those are the kinds of questions I think you have to ask yourself. In a pluralist society, can I live with people? Who, it's not just that I don't particularly want to live the way they live. I don't even like the way that they live. Um, and you have to ask yourself, can I do that? And if you can, I mean, you're, you're, you're well on your way to living in a happy, pluralist society. Let's put it this way, because this makes it kind of real for folks, though, is, you know, all the tyranny, the cruelty, the bad despots, you know, the Hitlers of the world, the Mao Zedongs, the great, you know, the really bad stuff that's happened. Mm-hmm. All that starts with let's blame that group of people that we don't like yeah. or whatever. It always starts with hating somebody. How do we draw that thread together from just, we got to treat our neighbors better, no matter what their religion or race or class or whatever distinction, demographic, immigrant status, whatever you want to pick. How do we draw that line of like, yeah, there's a thousand steps between me being nice to the guy on the street and Mao Zedong starving, you know, tens of millions of people to death. But there is a line there. And it starts with us doing yeah. this, and that prevents you from getting to that. I'm not sure there are, in some ways, a thousand steps between those things. I mean, in some ways, obviously, being rude to a guy on the street isn't going to starve him out. But that's how it starts. It's a society treating people different, thinking of people as different. Um, and then the thinking of people not as entirely human, or at least not as worthy of being treated well. Um, and then when they're not treated well, you don't care because you don't think they're worthy of it. Or you, you support them not being treated well. You go even further than that. Um, and it does. I think it does begin when you... C.S. Lewis has this wonderful line in your Christianity where he says, you know, it's hard to have charity for our enemies and people we don't like. He said, but you know, a good place to start is by acting like we do. He said, because it's surprising when you act like something, a lot of the times you end up actually believing it too. So always be careful what you're acting like as well in general. But... If you act nice to people, if you get to know people, you're probably going to like them better. And that's, I think, it sounds insane, but I think that sort of simple civility is the beginning for sort of preventing that kind of mass tyranny and oppression that plagues despotic societies. Yeah, and for the folks that think we're being silly or Mr. Rogers-ish about that, <laughs> consider 
you know, I don't want to broad brush because it ain't all of them. But so many of these nationalists, so many of the, you know, the NatCons, the the new right folks, they are so viciously ugly on social media. You can, I mean, yeah. that's, that's, that's one of the telltales. They're just not nice to anybody that's not them. Let's take it there to put a bow on this and come back to where we started, though, because politically, and you pointed out in your piece, they're not winning. They're losing. Yeah. They thought they had a moment with Trump, who, who, by the way, isn't a populist. He's, anyway, he's something else, and we'll deal with that some other time. But they latched on to that, right? They're right. finding out that their brand of nationalism, conservative nationalism, the new right, all this stuff, you know, the new Puritans that want, you know, a new religious American Christianity or otherwise, although, look, I'm a Christian, but whatever they're doing, that's not the Christianity I practice. Badly, I'm a C-minus Christian. Don't send your letters. I know I'm not a great Christian. Listen, they know they're not winning now. And that's why you're kind of getting this remix stuff, like the piece you're responding to. They're trying to rebrand it a little bit. They're trying to monetize it. They're trying to make it into a movement. Give us a couple things to watch in the future and what you think this is going, because they're never going to be a majority of people in America. They're always going to be a minority and a minority of a minority at that. But how do you see them reacting to that? Because they know they're not winning and that's going to dictate how they present themselves and how they conduct themselves in it. But it's in some ways um, it can become scarier when a group like this doesn't win, because at that point they have no investment at all in the democratic process. And they could win occasionally by happens chance. Um, and in those moments, they, they will probably erode what we consider democratic institutions, electoral institutions, um, that they are well aware do not advantage them. Um, they will take, make use of the state, the administrative state, which they also, um, you don't really have to have votes to become a bureaucrat in Washington, D.C., there are, in fact, a number of new right organizations, which I, I think seem in some ways to be doing better financially and politically um, than the purely political ones, whose whole job is to try and basically infiltrate the um, civil service of the United States. Um, and that's something to be worried about. Um, and some ways, I, I, like I said, I think it is more alarming when, when you have a snake that's cornered and at risk of death. Um, they're far more likely to strike and do something awful. And I think. That's something to watch out for in the coming years and months. Um, and you never know. They may win over. I worry that they could win over more uh, more voters than they currently have. It, there'll never be a majority, but it could be enough of a minority to win in the right circumstances occasionally. And a couple of times is all it takes. The Jeffrey Tyler sick joining us. Um, I, I want to end on this because you could go all day on the new right. You can argue with these people. I've stopped interacting with them online on social media, especially on LinkedIn. Well, here's the problem is because it's nailing jello to the wall. The more you talk about it, the more exposure you get. You're not going to actually convince them of anything. And they they are the purveyors of the debate me, bro, not because they want to debate and discuss anything, but because they just want, they like the noise of it. So as we were just talking, though, this isn't working. They're they're going to infiltrate in, you know, they're into the nonprofit sphere. They're going to they're not going to go away completely. These things ebb and flow. We can go back. Look, you can pull up posters from the 1870s where, you know, the know nothings, you know, this is not new stuff ideologically wise. How should folks approach when they see this stuff online, the nationalism, common goods, one of those words they love to throw around. Then, you know, you got to Well, common good for who exactly? Well, the common good. Well, what's your who's common and who's good? How do folks 
deal with this when they see because really they're not going to see this in yeah. their everyday life that much they'll see it on social media they'll see it on facebook yeah. they'll see it there some right. family member will just see the flag on the front of it and promote it how do they handle that sort of thing because that's the practical politics we don't spend enough time talking about right i i think you're right i'm not sure there's any um most of them are not worth arguing with um you can't really convince them but the people who i think we should be concerned about the people who are winnable a lot of young people, they're people my students age, 18, 19, 20, 21, um, who see things about the new right that they're sympathetic to. They don't like that the right keeps on losing. They don't like that the world's changing in ways that they're not personally comfortable with. Um, and they're the ones you have to win, the ones you have to convince that pluralist society can be good, that they can live the way they want to live in a pluralist society. Um, and that there are things we can do to make that more possible for them. Those are the people you have to reach. I'm not sure the new right is totally reachable. And in fact, my piece was, um, how do I put this, a little more firmly put. Um, but in the first draft, but I softened it before publication because it really isn't directed um, at the guy I'm responding to and at the members, people who already are very active in new right politics. It's directed at the people who, are vaguely conservative and who just are not, who are maybe sympathetic to the new right, but are not totally sold. The people, like I said, who are winnable. You need to do a whole nother piece just on that term winnable though, because that's, yeah, its, own little, that's its own crap. <laughs> uh, well, it's, a hard, it's a hard demographic to nail down to, because I think you can convince somebody for any number of varying reasons that may have nothing to do, <laughs> you know, one person could be even more convinced because of one thing and, you know, it's just impossible. But, All right. I'm going to ask you one more terminology that's floating around on the right, because I just know that this happens to be in your office. And I think it's just a fun tie in. And what good's knowing your friends if you can't make fun of them a little bit. But yeah, since, yeah. since the Guardian has the big piece out covering Red Caesar, which is one of the side right. notes of this nationalism, they want to, you know, Red is in Republican. They want a hard yeah. right Caesar to save the Republic because we're Rome, we're not, or the Roman Republic, we're right. not. Um, but the Red Caesar, and because I know what's in your office right now, I think that would be really fun because I actually gave you some advice on this and you didn't take me up on it on how to have some fun with your students. But what are your thoughts on Caesar, Red or otherwise? Right, so Caesar has always been one of these complicated figures because he was in his way a genuine populist. There were serious problems with the poor in Rome and he promised to fix them and he actually did fix a number of them, but he did so at sort of the cost of destroying the Roman Republic and taking it over and things like this. Um, the new right, I mean, some of them are pretty openly fond of, of Julius Caesar. Um, I get why they might feel that way. I think they're probably, he's a lot more populist than they actually are. Um, my favorite Roman, as I guess you're alluding to, is the one sitting behind me, which is um, Cicero, who, preached, um, was not particularly listened to because of course the Republic ended, but who preached that the classes and the people of Rome should, should try to live more harmoniously together. Um, he wasn't brilliant at making that happen. Um, he was an ineffectual politician, but in that respect. But, uh, and I, that I think is some good advice for the new ride. Um, you're right, we are ancient Rome, um, but, the the problem the, the solution is not entirely different. If we could learn to live together, if we could learn to be with one another and get along, um, it would go a lot 
better for us. I think total victory is only in the end going to destroy things we really love about America. Things most of us, anyways, really love about America. Joking about Red Caesars, I was teasing him his his bust of Cicero because the story is that uh, Cicero's hands were cut off and posted <laughs> and displayed in the uh, I believe in the outside the forum if I remember correctly. Yep. Um, I'm a little I'm a little rusty on my classical education that I had, but I said you need to put the bloody hands right above the Cicero so when the students come in, you'd be like, "This is what <laughs> happens to Chat GPT plagiarists." <laughs> Well, they're uh, on my front. They're on the door, you see. So they see before they even come in the in the office. <laughs> That's good, Professor. And Tyler's sick. Love having the conversation, my friend. We'll have you back. This whole piece is in Thank Law and so Liberty. Much. It is a long piece. Please read the entire thing. Lots of good stuff. We're skipping over some of the names and stuff because we just don't want to get too far afield. Make sure you go back, go through that, and read his stuff. Let folks know where they can keep up with you and what you got going on until we get you back on the program again, my friend. So I'm active on Twitter at, at Tyler Sick, and then I also have a personal website that I semi-regularly update with my recent pieces called um, jtylersick.com. Yep, we will link to both of those along with the piece. They'll be in the show notes on the Hertel Substack. Uh, now that you're in Pikeville, though, I do have to remind you, make sure you tell all those traitorous McCoys to stay on their side of the tug and there won't be no trouble. <laughs> Other than that, sir, you have yourself a wonderful day and keep them straight down there. You too. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, sir. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. And that'll do it for this edition of Herd Tell. Wherever you are, you can join us through whatever medium you're listening to. If you're on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, we're even on some podcasts over in India. You folks in India, we see you on the stats. Welcome. Thank you. Drop us a line. We're all over the world and on any podcasting platform you can think of. Make sure you're subscribing and or following or whatever that platform calls it. That helps us keep track of you, lets us know how you're listening to the program, make sure we can tailor it to get it to you. Heard Tell Show or my name, Andrew Donaldson, on any of those platforms, it'll come right up. But we have a one-stop shop for everything that we do. HerdTell.substack.com. It's completely free. Subscribe. You get everything right into your inbox. Anytime I write, do a media appearance, do a new episode of Heard Tell. We also have Heard Tell specials. We're going to get back to doing the twice on Sunday recap shows. We also have a huge archive. So we're going to have some specials, some best of things like that. And also some of the food writing from Yonder and Home. We're starting to re-up that as well. We got over 600 episodes of Heard Tell in the archive to start porting over. We're going to be working on that. So sign up for the Substack, please. Get you right in your inbox. Never miss anything. Doesn't cost you anything more than a click. Herdtel.substack.com. We sure appreciate it. And follow us on social media. Herdtel Show on the Twitter. Four for the Fire is my personal Twitter handle. No, we're not going to call it X. But if you could share us and let folks know that our programs are worth checking out, we sure would appreciate it. So wherever you are, across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well-fed. We'll talk to you real soon for the next Herd Tell. 
All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Somos la máquina.